The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. We are going to dig into the Word here in just a minute, but before we begin that, um, I want to mention something that's happening here right in this room this evening. Who, if not most of you know that uh, we are renting this building right now, and one of the things that we need to do next year is purchase this building. And so we're going to be doing a capital campaign fundraising experience in October, and as part of that, depending on, on uh, how successful we are with that process, we may be able to also roll in some property improvements and repairs that need to be done and that kind of thing, all into one process of, of making this big, important purchase. And so tonight, we're having um, uh, an air quotes town hall meeting, and it's going to be led by two uh, artisan members who are uniquely equipped to do this kind of thing, Dan and... Ellen will be leading us through this experience tonight. They've both done this with communities um, as part of their work. And they're going to be talking to us and helping us discuss um, potential things that we could do around here, uh, whether it's some repairs that need to be done or some improvements to the property or uh, anything that we really could do that would help us better accomplish our mission and be true to our values which we believe God has given us. And so tonight is going to be your first opportunity to contribute to that discussion. And it will be very collaborative and lots of fun and non-threatening. And uh, I would love to have all of you be here tonight. It starts at 5. Please come a little bit early. A, your pizza will be a little bit hotter. And B, we'll get to start on time. We do have... It's going to be kind of a full night. So we're looking to... uh, give you some food, and then get discussing. We are, we've promised to provide childcare for, for youngest ones, preschoolers. Uh, we think school-age kids can participate in this discussion just like adults can. Um, but as of yet, we haven't really found anybody who's willing to do that. So if you are not doing something tonight and you don't care about uh, this process, and would like to watch some children, that would probably be helpful. If you have a babysitter that you really trust and want to pass that name on to us and we can kind of um, maybe have something happen tonight, that would be great too. So Ellen would be the one to talk to about that. Is that right, Ellen? Yeah. Okay, so that's tonight at 5 p.m., two hours. Uh, I think it's really going to be worth your time. And the more of you who are there, the better and more complete and, and useful the process will be. So please come back tonight at 5. And we'll remind you about that when we leave um, today. So um, as we get into this last week of our Means of Grace series, and we're going to talk about communion today, I want to give you a little flashback to English class. Now, I'm one of those humanities people who loved English class uh, way more than math class um, or science class, Uh, but I know that some of you are in the complete opposite boat, so just bear with me here as I remind you of something that was probably as torturous to you as uh, frictionless planes uh, were to me. (laughs) Um, Do you remember in English class the discussion of narrative structure? It was very often um, put on a little triangle pyramid thing here, right? Okay, our newspaper man is over there. He's, he's helping us, right? Well, it's, 
it's TV news. I, I understand it's a difference. They'll, they'll both be dead in five years. So it, it, um... <laughs> Not if you keep on the job, though. <laughs> oh, man. Seth busts my chops a little bit, so I have to, I have to return the favor. Bust them back. So the narrative structure, do you remember this little, this pyramid, right? Is anybody other than uh, our TV man remembering this? Um, there's, first it starts with exposition of the situation. That's the, that's the beginning of it. And then you have what's called rising action. There's conflict that happens, right? Is this familiar now? And you get to the peak there, and the, the peak of the pyramid is called the climax or the turning point in the narrative, in the story. And then you have it come down the other side of the pyramid. It's called falling action. And then at the end is uh, resolution, or if you wanted to sound really snobby, you would say it's the denouement, right? Um, or if you wanted to read the snobby word but didn't understand how to pronounce French, you would say it's the denouement. <laughs> um, do you remember this pyramid of, uh, of narrative structure? I was thinking about this this week because I was, uh, I was kind of thinking in my mind about how uh, I've talked before that... that our experience of worship is really a, drama, a dramatic reenactment of the gospel story. In worship, we aim to, to tell the story of Christ's death and resurrection and what that means for us every single week. And it's not that um, the, the people who stand up on this stage or sit on this stage and play music or read the Bible or pray a prayer or give a sermon or whatever it might be are, are the drama and you are the viewers, it really is, uh, the way we'd like to conceive of it, that all of us together are participants in this drama. We are all making this thing happen, this play, if you will, about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And I got thinking about that because there's one thing that I would like you to know about how we structure that little worship drama um, and what I'd like you to know is where we understand the climax to be, where, where the, the turning point of that narrative is. Um, you see, in most churches in our kind of tradition, in other words, churches that are uh, Protestant, evangelical, um, like we are, what you find is that everything in the service drives toward a sermon. In fact, at most churches like ours, um, and I, I'm not saying that they're worse than we are, just we just have a different take on it. In most churches like ours, nothing happens after the sermon. It's the last part of the service. And everything pushes up to that, and then some expert comes up and tells you what you're supposed to think and believe and understand the Bible to mean. And then you go home. That was the, that's the peak of the action. For us, we look at it a little bit differently. It's not that the sermon is unimportant. Um, I hope not, because it's, it, it is part of what I do most weeks. Um, but in my mind, when we come together to worship, everything that we do points toward communion. It points to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's the table that we come around together that is the apex, the climax of this narrative, this little worship play that we, that we put on each week. You may, you may actually never notice this, and you might not have known it if I didn't bring it up right now, but 
At Artisan, we follow a very ancient, traditional pattern of worship. Uh, even though our music is modern and the, you know, the way we dress is maybe not all that ancient and so forth, uh, but we do follow a pattern that Christian worship has followed for its entire history, actually. And it's right there in your bulletin. Um, if you, you may have never noticed this, but it's right on the front page of your bulletin. Um, it's a fourfold pattern of worship. We, we gather together. We hear the word read and proclaimed. We participate at the table. And then we are sent forth to be the church. And that's what we do every, every week here. Those four things happen every single week. And you may not be conscious of it, and it doesn't even matter, honestly, um, because I think the, the rhythm and structure there is useful to you, even if you don't know it's happening. And to me, in that, that flow, that fourfold pattern of worship, it is that third part, the table of the Lord, that really is what everything points to. And then after that climax, everything falls and resolves as we're preparing to leave this room. And so I'm going to tell you some more about why I think that communion is the high point of the service and about how the sermon particularly connects to communion because most of us are steeped in this evangelical tradition where that is understood to be the most important thing. Uh, And I'm telling you that I don't think it is. I'll tell you more about that in a bit. um, But for now, I'd like to pause for a word of prayer and then I have um, some scripture that I want to read with you. So let's pray. God, we give you... Great thanks for these means of grace, these waterfalls of your grace that we can stand under and receive. And today as we look at this last one for this series, the the sacrament of Holy Communion, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts to what you'd have us learn and understand and believe. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord, whose table it is we are here to talk about and celebrate around today. Amen. Two Bible stories I want to read with you today. The first one is from Luke 22. And uh, I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. If you own a Bible at home, bring it with you. It's good to get familiar with your own way of looking at the text. If you don't have one, there are some under your chairs. They look just like this one. And uh, you're welcome to take it home with you. you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of these. And on page 857, uh, Luke 22, I want to read you verses 14 through 22. Uh, And this is the story of Jesus uh, in his last days on earth, some of his last days on earth, sharing the Passover meal with his disciples. Now remember, they were all Jewish, and this is one of the most sacred traditions in the Jewish faith, the, the Passover, which celebrated God's dramatic deliverance of the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. And uh, let's look starting at 2214. When the hour came, he, being Jesus, took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup And after giving thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
He did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But see, the one who betrays me is with me, and his hand is on the table. For the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that one by whom he is betrayed. So this obviously is the institution of the sacrament of communion. This is the the Last Supper, known as the Last Supper. Um, And uh, it's it's kind of the foundation for why we celebrate communion. So you need to have that in the back of your mind. But the passage that I really want to focus on today is a couple of pages uh, later, just near the end of the book, uh, in chapter 24. That supper had happened just a few days before, and that very night he had been betrayed by Judas. And this passage takes place on Easter Sunday, after the resurrection has occurred. Let's look at chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, and I'm going to read through 35. Now, on that same day, again, this is Sunday, Easter, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. 
They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. May God bless the hearing of his word. Amen. There's two items toward the end of that second passage that I want to draw your attention to. And you could definitely say that these two items that I want to to mention to you and talk about a little bit are, they make up the climax of this story. They make up the, the turning point of the narrative. This little story from Luke's gospel. The first thing I want to show you is in, in verse 30, where it says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And then was to say, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. I think it's interesting that they had walked with Jesus this whole distance, maybe hours, without recognizing him. And even as he told them how their entire Bible, (laughs) Moses and all the prophets pointed to that very day, the first Easter Sunday, they still didn't recognize him. They had no idea that this was Jesus, even as he himself was explaining that everything they knew and believed about God and their history with God had pointed to that very weekend. They didn't recognize him yet. When did they recognize him? It was when he did what? When he broke the bread and gave it to him. First of all, it's kind of interesting that they invited him into their house, and suddenly he's serving the bread. (laughs) He broke the bread and gave it to them. When was the last time he had done that? On the very night that he had been betrayed and handed over to the authorities to be crucified. And he broke that bread and gave it to them, and suddenly their eyes were opened. And the, the summary that Luke gives at the end there says that he had been revealed to them in the breaking of the bread, and that's what, he, that's what they told their friends. And then as soon as they recognize him, he vanishes from sight. So that's the first little bit that you need to have in your head is that they they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. And the second part happens immediately after that when they are sitting, sort of stunned by this experience, and they look back on what had happened throughout that day. And then in verse 32, they say to themselves, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? I love that image. Were not our hearts burning within us? And so now we get to this point, having those two bits, that, that, that climax of the narrative story in this gospel, that I can talk a little bit more about what I hinted at earlier, which is the relationship, I think, in our, in our worship drama between the hearing and proclaiming of the word, in other words, the sermon, and the celebration of communion, and how I think that communion is the high point of our drama together. So I want you to notice the order in which this story unfolded, and what happened and what didn't happen in each part. Jesus walked with them and explained the scriptures to them. That's the word. 
And it's not as though that was meaningless to them. It was, as the text says, as a result of this experience of having the scriptures open to them, their hearts burned within them. But it was when he sat around the table with them and broke bread with them that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And there's a significance to those two things, to hearing the word proclaimed or explained and to the breaking of the bread. And there's a significance to the order in which they happened. That significance is that it's the hearing of God's word that prepares your heart to recognize Jesus in the bread and the wine. One of my favorite, favorite contemporary Christian thinkers is N.T. Wright. He was a bishop in the Anglican Church uh, for many years. And he wrote a great book about communion called The Meal Jesus Gave Us. And one of the things he says in that book is this. He says, Scripture is expounded so that the heart is warmed. Food is served so that the Lord may be known. And I love the fact that this deep, profound, sacramental means of grace is offered to us by Jesus in basically the most common thing that could have been used at that time. The simplest meal, bread and table wine, became the holiest sacraments that we have in understanding Jesus. Scripture is expounded so that the heart is warmed, food is served so that the Lord may be known, and it is my sincere hope that whenever you come to a worship service here at Artisan Church, that you are drawn into that gathering by the Holy Spirit, and that when you hear the Bible read aloud, or hopefully even when you hear it preached and proclaimed and expounded upon, that your hearts do burn. (laughs) Because that is the preparation that you need, a a burning heart, in order to recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread that, that always follows the word when we come together to worship him. And I think that the scripture contains a power in and of itself such that very often, uh, especially when we're using the, the lectionary to assign our scriptures to us for the week, we read the passages and we don't even explain them. I believe that there's a, a, a significance and a power in the, in the Word of God that, that is present even absent my ability or lack thereof to explain it. <laughs> and uh, if you're a baseball fan, you know that a, a, a hitter who can have a 30% success rate for his entire career, is uh, basically at the top of his game. And I'd like to think that if I have a 30% success rate saying something about the Scripture that makes your hearts burn <laughs> just a little bit, um, that the Holy Spirit would use to speak to you, that I would, I would consider that <laughs> a pretty good success. Uh, but, the, but the power is in the text. It's in the Word. Scripture is expounded so that the heart is formed Food is served so that the Lord may be known. Now let me tie this in, if I can, in the last few minutes here, with what we've talked about over these past two weeks, which is the means of grace. If you haven't been here, I'll give you a quick recap. We've talked about the means of grace, in other words, the ways that God pours his grace out on us. And the metaphor that we've used throughout this series is that of a waterfall. Remember the 
the uh, thought experiment, the imaginative moment I sent you on in the first week where you're walking through a jungle or a desert and it's hot and, and you're drying out and you're about to die and then suddenly you find this waterfall just cascading 100 feet above you on the, onto the path where you're walking. And you step under the waterfall and you are instantly cooled to your core and you, you drink and you're not thirsty anymore. And it saves your life. And this is what we're thinking about when we talk about the means of grace, as if it's a, a waterfall of grace. Now, you have to go stand under that waterfall, which doesn't mean that it's you doing it. <laughs> God put the waterfall there and told you to stand under it. Uh, and if you're obedient to that, you receive it, that grace. Remember also that we talked about in the first week prayer and searching the scriptures as the basic, most common, most powerful, easily understood means of grace. Those are the first two waterfalls. Praying and seeking the scriptures. And anybody can do that, whether you're a believer, whether you've confessed faith decades ago, or whether you have no faith whatsoever and you're just beginning to explore this concept. And we also, at that point, talked about the idea that baptism and communion for us are further means of grace and they're sacramental, intended for those of us who have confessed faith in Christ in, in the context of a Christian community. And finally, remember, when we talk about baptism or communion, we say that they are a sacrament. What we mean is that they are sacred mysteries, which is not a synonym for a holy puzzle <laughs> that we have to figure out, but rather a revelation of something that was hidden. The sacraments are a visible sign of an invisible reality. They're an outward sign of an inward reality. And that catches you up with the past couple of weeks. Um, and now I'd like you to recall something else, something that, I've, that I say almost every time we take communion together. You may have noticed this if you're a, a, an attentive noticer person. Um, I didn't mean that to be insulting to people who wouldn't recognize this or notice it. <laughs> um, in, as if you're not attentive. <laughs> um, but some people see patterns more quickly than others, I guess. Um, every time I introduce communion to you, almost every time, I, I describe it in three ways, and I instruct you to take it for three reasons. And some of you will probably be able to recite this along with me. Um, I say to take communion as an act of remembrance of Christ's death and resurrection. And I say to take communion as an act of unity with each other. Communion. Not only with each other, but with all the Christians throughout the world today and throughout history who have celebrated the same sacrament. So remembrance and unity. And the other one that I always say is take communion and receive the food for your soul, which is a straight out of John Wesley. And you, you guys know that I'm a bit of a John Wesley fanboy. Um, it's that last one, the food for your soul, that I think connects most close, closely with what we're talking about today. So when I say that communion is a means of grace, I'm thinking specifically about sanctifying grace. Let me take you back one more time to the first week when we talked about the three types of, of grace um, that we receive. Prevenient grace, which comes before the moment of our conversion, and justifying grace, which is the grace that flows to us and saves our souls the hour we first believed, to quote the old hymn. And then I sort of jokingly said, and then we're all done, and we're fine. But of course we're not, because we have a whole lifetime left of trying to figure out 
what we have gotten ourselves into. (laughs) And our souls get hungry and weak. And we need sustaining, sanctifying grace. And I think that that sanctifying grace, the grace of God's sustenance, is found most obviously in the sacrament of Holy Communion. Because it's a long road that we start to travel on when we confess faith in Christ, is it not? (laughs) And it can be a dry road sometimes. I think for many of us, we have this amazing, striking, unmistakable experience with Jesus when we first come to believe that He's the Son of God and the source of our salvation. We hear the word proclaimed and our hearts burn. And we invite him into our life, into our little spiritual home, just like Cleopas and his companion had done. And we recognize him. We know him. And suddenly it all makes sense. Many times that first experience with Jesus is kind of hard to match. And almost as soon as we have recognized him and invited him into our lives, he vanishes from our sight. And that's why we need every week to have the experience of hearing the word read and proclaimed, to hear the scriptures, followed by receiving the bread and the cup, because that is truly where we can recognize him again. Scripture is expounded so that the heart may be warmed. Food is served so that the Lord may be known. And so as I invite you this week to come to communion, I want you to think of, think of it this way. Um, maybe your faith is a little bit tired today. If it's not, that's great. I don't want to lay that on you and say that you should feel awful about your faith. You may have had a very recent experience with Jesus and you feel like you're uh, on the top of the mountain with him. Uh, And that's stupendous. (laughs) And you will have those mountaintop experiences throughout your life. I I certainly don't mean to indicate that you're you're in for a lifetime of dreariness. (laughs) But for some of you that I, I happen to know because I've talked to you that your faith is tired. And the high mountain experience of your first recognition of Jesus didn't last in quite the way that you had hoped, and you're having a little bit of trouble maybe seeing him at work in your life the way you once did. And if you hear nothing else from me today, what I want you to hear is that that is normal. That is okay. It doesn't mean that you should abandon your faith and say that whatever happened to you must have been your imagination. What it means is that you need to stand under the waterfall. As many of the waterfalls as you can get your hot little head underneath. But today... The waterfall that I want you to focus on is this one. And it is, as always, my hope that in hearing this 
story, these stories from the Gospel of Luke read to you and, and explained somewhat that your hearts maybe are burning just a little bit. And for some of you, that feeling of your heart burning has um, been long absent. <laughs> and it's, it's a wonderful thing that that's happening. Um, but you recognize him in the breaking of the bread. It is now our sacred privilege to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. All who humbly put their trust in Christ and desire his help that they may lead a holy life. All who are truly sorry for their sins and would be delivered from them. All who would walk in love with their neighbors and intend to live a new life following the commandments of God and walking from now on in his holy ways are invited to draw near with faith and to receive this holy sacrament. Come to this sacred table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify not that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and to pray for the Spirit. Come as you hear the call of God on your life, as we continue to worship together in song. This table is open and available to all who seek to follow him in this place. Let's continue to worship him together.